It's Wednesday, February 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Back in September 2017, we learned from credit reporting company Equifax that they had been hacked and the personal information of about 147 million people had been compromised. On Monday, the Justice Department charged four Chinese military members as the culprits. Exploiting a software vulnerability that Equifax failed to patch, the hackers were able to spend weeks inside the system stealing sensitive data. Matt Zapatosky, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joined us for how it was done. Next, ransomware has taken a significant leap forward in its sophistication and accessibility. Right now, anyone can get onto the dark web and buy their way into RAS, or ransomware as a service. It provides the buyer with an online interface to easily execute and manage this type of cybercrime. It is a simple, low-risk way to target someone, infect their computer, encrypt their files, get paid ransom money, and send the victim a way to decrypt those files. Drake Bennett, reporter on the projects and investigations team at Bloomberg News, joins us for what happened when he sabotages editor with ransomware. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm here to announce the indictment of Chinese military hackers, specifically four members of the Chinese People's Liberation Army, for breaking into the computer systems of the credit reporting agency Equifax. Joining us now is Matt Zapatosky, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you for having me. So back in September of 2017, the credit reporting company Equifax came clean. They had told us that they had been hacked and the sensitive personal information of about 143 million U.S. citizens had been compromised. There was things like names, birth dates, social security numbers. It was just a huge theft. And on Monday, the Justice Department identified who the culprit was. They said it was China and four Chinese military members. Matt, what do we know about China's involvement in this whole thing? The Justice Department says this was an operation by four members of the People's Liberation Army, which is China's military, that these four guys had hacked into Equifax's systems, stealing, as you mentioned, personal information, social security numbers, names, that sort of thing. The Justice Department fears that this sort of has a twofold purpose. One, it's kind of economic espionage. Another thing was purportedly taken or allegedly taken was company trade secrets, Equifax trade secrets. But the other thing the Justice Department fears is going on here is that China is amassing this huge database of Americans' personal information. The Chinese, in the Justice Department's view, maybe hopes to use that to target people as possible people that they can flip to become spies or use for other intelligence reasons. And this information is really helpful to them in that. The personal information is like the perfect leverage for doing something like that. But we've been going back and forth with China now for a while on certain things. There's other hacks that they've been doing on us. In this case, in particular, China denies any cyber attacks, but we know that they've been responsible for a few in the past. The attorney general yesterday in announcing this case said that it was of a piece with many others. Back in 2014-2015, authorities here accused China of hacking the health insurer Anthem, the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management hack was around that time too. And then just a couple years ago, 2018, the hotel chain Marriott got hacked. And again, the fear is that China is just taking, amassing all this personal information on Americans and then building a database that they can use for intelligence purposes, plus the economic espionage aspect of this. So Justice Department officials definitely fear that this is part of a troubling pattern. 
After looking into it, I think Equifax revised their number up to 147 million people that got hacked. They settled on a $700 million settlement, and people that got affected can get free credit monitoring or a cash payout of $125, although that was very suspect, too. They said if too many people come to us for money, that number could go down. What do we know about how these poor Chinese hackers were able to do it? Some of it seems like it was still partly Equifax's fault. So there was a simple way of explaining this is there was kind of a security flaw that a software company had disclosed, but Equifax didn't plug the gap. So Chinese hackers, you know, motivated Chinese hackers are able to get in through this unrepaired software flaw. And then in addition to that, they took steps to cover their tracks. So they routed server traffic through like 34 servers in 20 different countries. They would wipe the logs that would show their activity. They used Equifax's own encrypted communication channels so that they just couldn't be detected. But indeed, there is a question to be raised for Equifax here. This software flaw had been publicly disclosed and it was not fixed. And that really helped the Chinese get in here and access all this data. My understanding, these hackers were so deep into Equifax's system and, you know, and going through all these procedures to kind of mask what was actually happening. They were so deep in there, it kind of just looked like normal network activity. That's why nobody really caught it at first. Do we know how long they were in there, how long they were operating with this? Boy, I don't remember exactly from the indictment. I do believe that that was spelled out in there, but I believe it was a period of weeks and they were running sort of scans thousands of times. I mean, this wasn't like they were quick in and out. As you say, they were in there kind of lurking and they weren't discovered immediately because they had taken all these steps to cover their tracks. One of the things that's interesting about this is that, yes, the Justice Department indicted these four military Chinese military members, but... We don't have them in custody, and there's really no expectation that we will ever have them in our custody. So, I mean, it's just kind of other than, like, I guess, public shaming, you can call it or something, or just calling out China publicly. This is most likely not going to go anywhere. The Justice Department recently has grown more fond of this tactic that law enforcement officials call name and shame. So you saw this with like the Russian interference case where they identify members of Russian intelligence that they say were responsible for various hacking and other social media efforts. And there's no chance that these people are going to come back here, right? Russia is not going to send them back. China is not going to send them back. But just naming them and sort of shaming them in their countries in the view of some Justice Department officials has merit in its own rights. And the FBI the deputy director said yesterday, look, it's true that China is never going to turn these people over, but who knows, maybe one day they travel to a country that's allied with the U.S. and we can take them into custody. You know, maybe they slip up on some international trip. So it's theoretically possible, but practically, probably we will never see them here in court. Yeah, I think the official said it is like a line straight out of a movie, I guess. But one day these criminals will slip up and when they do, we'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) That Um, seems like a little bit of thinking. Right, exactly. Uh, Okay. And the last question, I mean, what does this do for U.S.-China relations? I mean, we've been going back and forth with them a lot on the theft of intellectual property. You know, as you mentioned, it looked like they were trying to steal some trade secrets from Equifax. We obviously had the trade war that possibly could be getting better now. But I mean, what does this do when we call out some military officials for taking part of this? 
it strains the relation, right? And you saw China come out after this and say, we don't hack, and then point at the U.S. and say, well, look at all the hacking and intelligence gathering you do. So it strains the relationship. And just as this is of a piece with the Justice Department accusing them of other hacks, it's of a piece with the Justice Department just kind of taking a more publicly aggressive posture towards China. So just last week, the Attorney General gave kind of his first big China speech, and he essentially said, look, this Chinese company Huawei is really out for world dominance, and we, the U.S. and our allies, need to work together to stop them. So certainly we have, you know, an economic relationship with China, and this doesn't end that, but it it causes some strain between the countries as they sort of publicly lob allegations, you know, at one another. Matt Zapatowski, national security reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It may have originally started out as kind of an ironic term based on this term software as a service, which is this extraordinarily large Silicon Valley industry that encompasses everything from Slack to Amazon Web Services. But now there's this term, ransomware as a service, or RAS, which is the abbreviation that you often see in these chat threads on the dark web. Joining us now is Drake Bennett, reporter on the projects and investigations team at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Drake. Thanks for having me. I saw the article and I loved it right away. The time I sabotaged my editor with ransomware from the dark web. I've always been curious about this and we've increasingly been seeing stories about hospitals, small cities, municipalities that are getting attacked with ransomware and then having to pay huge sums of money to get their files encrypted so that they can get back to the business of doing whatever they have to do. But malware, ransomware, this has all come along so far in the years that it's been active. And uh, pretty much anyone can go onto the dark web now, buy some ransomware and start targeting people. And this is kind of the experiment that you and your editor did. It's kind of a cautionary tale, I guess, for criminals that might want to get involved because we'll find out in the end how it all worked. But Drake, tell us a little bit how you got involved in all this. Well, I started poking around in the topic last year when Baltimore was the victim of a ransomware attack that took down all sorts of city email servers and databases and really ground the work of the city to a halt. And I started exploring this world of the way in which ransomware could be purchased basically off the shelf. And you didn't need to be able to code it yourself. You didn't need to be some kind of particularly talented hacker or coder to get your hands on this stuff. You could buy it. And not only could you buy it, if you weren't really sure how to use it, you could actually pay not particularly high subscription fees to a service available on the dark web to manage your ransomware attack for you. And there's actually a term for this that you find in these dark web chat rooms, and it's ransomware as a service. And it may have originally started out as kind of an ironic term based on this term software as a service, which is this extraordinarily large Silicon Valley industry that encompasses everything from Slack to Amazon Web Services. But now there's this term ransomware as a service, or RAS, which is the abbreviation that you often see in these chat threads on the dark web. So I, at a certain point, realized, like, well, if it's so easy to do it, maybe I could do it and maybe I should try to do it just as kind of a proof of concept of the idea that anyone can. And just by way of background, I should mention that I am not a particularly (laughs) tech savvy person. I barely understand how my phone works. I have kind of like this like very primitive idea of even how the internet works. So I figured it would be kind of an extreme proof point of the accessibility and ease of 
getting one's hands on and then using this particular form of software-enabled cybercrime. That's it, the rise of ransomware and how accessible it is to a lot of people. And you can be a sophisticated hacker targeting a city, or you can be somebody just wanting to make a few bucks targeting somebody on a lot lower scale. So tell us the steps. How did you go through this? You had to get onto the dark web and you had to start searching for RAS, I'm assuming, right? Ransomware as a service is where you probably started your search? In the story, I tried to leave out certain details that might make it easy for someone to actually, you know, become a kind of cybercrime entrepreneur from scratch. But basically, this stuff is sold on the dark web. And the dark web, as I learned in the course of reporting the story, is, is a swath of the internet that's not only not indexed and searchable, but it's basically been configured so as to not be accessible by normal web browsers. So you have to get a special anonymizing browser like the Tor browser is a common one. So you get the address of one of these chat rooms and you go there and you pretty quickly just see people peddling these various software. And the other thing about it that's interesting is there's just a lot of discussion about which forms of malware are, are better, which are worse, which are basically bogus. This is obviously like wholly unregulated world. And so a lot of people are promising to sell you something and then either you pay them in Bitcoin and they never deliver it or what you get turns out to be defective, which we can talk about because it has some bearing on my experience. But so you kind of go, you get a sense for this shady buyer beware environment and then you can try to actually reach out to someone and and buy what they're selling in a sense it was kind of like buying something on amazon or whatnot where you had to trust the comments section to to really see hey okay is this guy legit or whatnot obviously we're talking about people wanting to do bad things in this ransomware world but you kind of still had to trust the comments in a way which was kind of funny that came across all right so before we go through the steps a little further so you found one on wherever you were searching, it was only $150. There were some other services that might have cost a lot more, maybe in the $900 to $1,000 range. You wanted to go with this cheaper version. And so now you had it and you set this plan up with your editor. You guys bought like two cheap laptops uh, just in case something went haywire so you guys wouldn't get hacked. And you you devised the plan so you can go through it and see how it would all work in practice. So the first step is to, which a lot of the way these things work, is a phishing attack or a spear phishing attack. So it's basically sending somebody an email, hoping that they'll click on that attachment, and boom, it releases that ransomware into their computer. And just so people know, phishing is kind of large-scale attacks. Spear phishing is a more targeted attack, which is what you were doing with your editor. So you sent him the attachments, he clicked on it, and you guys were able to get in. So now tell us what happened with the service that you bought and how all that played out. The reason this ended up working at all was because I had enlisted the help of an extremely talented cybersecurity researcher named Joe Stewart, who kind of was holding my hand through this process. And one of the things that we discovered, so basically I paid my 150 bucks in Bitcoin to this anonymous person or group of people I met through the dark web, got login credentials for a website. You know, it was a pretty intuitive interface. You go in, there's various tabs, one of which is a dashboard that allows me to keep track of my various ransomware campaigns once they're up and running. There was another page called the builder page, and that's where I actually would 
create the software executable that would be the thing I would try to get onto my victim's computer. And so you enter in a few pieces of information and then you get this piece of software and then there are various ways to try to get it onto your target computer. You know, the most common one is, as you pointed out, a phishing uh, attack or a, a spear phishing attack. And because I was doing this in a very controlled way, I just had one target, my editor, Max Chapkin. And so I crafted a kind of a bespoke email that was written to lull him into a sense of kind of uh, security and to click on the attachment. One thing that did become clear pretty early on is that the software I had was not bulletproof. There were some issues with it. And so somewhat ironically, Joe, my sensei and all this, had to fix it. So there, first of all, there was an issue with what's called the decryptor. And just to kind of explain the role that plays, it's a pretty simple kind of scheme, right? First, you lock up everyone, lock up your victim's data. And then once it's scrambled and unusable to them, you demand that they pay you the ransom to get their own information back. Technically, you don't have to unscramble their information. After they've paid you, you already have your money. You can go on and find your next victim. But the kind of business model in general demands that victims are at least reasonably hopeful that they'll get their data back once they've paid you. So it's not a great idea to have a defective decryptor. So Joe was able to find the problem with mine and fix it so that it did work. So once we had that in place, we were ready to go. I mean, there were other complications that arose, and I can get into those if you'd like. Well, I I wanted to move a little forward. I mean, the bottom line was that once you guys were able to get it to work, the plan was all set in motion and everything worked out. You were able to get the ransom money. You were able to decrypt your quote unquote victims files. Really, the point is, is that maybe on the buyer side, (laughs) in your sense Mm -hmm. of it, uh, maybe needed to spend a little bit more money. But it is so easy to get in there get some of this ransomware as a service. You don't even have to really be as technical or a coder or anything like that. And you're off. You know, you can do this so easily from the first step to the last step in buying and executing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's in retrospect, it seems almost inevitable that something like ransomware would arise today where you have the internet, where you have cryptocurrencies, because it's such a tidy cybercrime, right? It's it's low risk. It's very scalable. You can send out, you know, as many of these phishing emails as you have email addresses. Uh, and then once the data is locked up, you know, unlike other forms, like say you're stealing credit card numbers or something like that, that's a form of cybercrime where you have to then go monetize the data you have somehow. You have to buy stuff with it. You have to, uh, you know, get someone to, you know, cash out the money from the bank account you've stolen or something like that. But with ransomware, you know, you just have to lock up the data and then get the victim to pay you for it. So right. it's incredibly simple uh, conceptually and almost, you know, idiot proof um, in terms of execution. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's there are certainly things that people can do to make themselves less uh, appealing as targets. But I think as a sort of macro trend, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, it's an interesting read. I suggest everybody go out and and check it out because there's a lot of other stuff. You you know, you do a little bit of history and kind of explain uh, the trajectory of ransomware and and where we at right now. Um, So, yeah, everybody should check it out. Drake Bennett, reporter for the Projects and Investigations team at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. That's it for today. Join us on social media. 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.